Hi, everyone. Hello again. Welcome to another bonus episode of Art Curious. Today, I am happy to share with you a conversation I had over the summer with Joanna Moorhead, the author of Surreal Spaces, The Life and Art of Leonora Carrington. The British-born artist and writer Leonora Carrington is one of the vanguards in the history of women artists and surrealism. The interests of this visionary, feminism, ecology, the arcane, the mystical, the interconnectedness of everything, are now shared by many. Challenging the conventions of her time, Carrington abandoned family, society, and her home, England, to embrace new experiences and forge a unique artistic style in Europe and the Americas. In this evocative illustrated biography, writer and journalist Joanna Moorhead traces her cousin's footsteps, exploring the artist's life, loves, friendships, and work. Surreal Spaces is an intimate and vivid portrait of a fascinating artist. Joanna Moorhead is a British journalist and author whose critically acclaimed memoir, The Surreal Life of Leonora Carrington, chronicles her relationship with Carrington, her cousin. So here we go, listeners. Enjoy. Joanna Moorhead, thank you and welcome to Art Curious. Lovely to talk to you. I am so excited to have you on the show today to talk about Surreal Spaces. Before we begin, just in case there are some listeners who aren't aware of Leonora Carrington's work and also about your personal connection, what can you tell us about how you are connected to her? Well, I'm connected to Leonora because she was my dad's cousin, but there was no close family relationship with her when I was a child and when I was growing up. Um, although my father was very close to Leonora's brother, who was also his cousin, and we saw a lot of him, and we saw quite a lot of my great aunt, who was Leonora's mother. But I was the, there'd been some kind of scandal. I didn't manage to find out what had happened, and she had disappeared many years before I was born. So it was it was wasn't until I was in my forties and had a chance meeting with a Mexican art historian. And I remembered when I was talking to this woman that this mysterious character from my father's family that I only really had ever managed to glean two pieces of information about her. And one was that she'd ended up in Mexico. And the other was that art was involved in her story. I didn't even know she was herself an artist, really. And because uh, my grandmother used to say that she'd run off to be an artist's model. Okay. Um and and I said to this woman, you know, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've never heard of my father's cousin, but I know Mexico is involved in art and her name was, and then I remembered her name because in our family, she wasn't called Leonora, you see, she was called Prim. So I remembered that her proper name was Leonora and I said her name's Leonora Carrington and this woman was amazed. <laughs> she couldn't believe that I didn't know that Leonora Carrington, as she then went ahead and told me, was the most famous living artist then in Mexico. This was 2006. And she said, if she's your cousin, you must go and find her. And that's exactly what I did. Oh, my goodness. I love the personal connection so much. I love hearing about her life in general, but knowing the relationship that you were able to then establish together that you were able to go visit her, that just adds such an interesting element. What was that like, that experience? And how old was Leonora at this point when you were able to go? Well, I met her at the very, well, not the very end of her life, because happily, she lived another five years after I met her. But when I met her for the first time, she was 89 
And I went there. I'm a journalist in my day job. I write mostly for The Guardian and The Observer. And I was I got a commission from The Guardian to do a piece about Leonora. And of course, between meeting the Mexican art historian and actually going to Mexico, I read a great deal about Leonora and found out a lot about her. So I went to I went to Mexico to meet her in 2006, thinking that I would write one story for my newspaper and it would be great to hear the story from her of her life and these extraordinary events that had happened in her life. And then that would be that. I'd go home and tell my dad and the other relatives of hers about her and that would be the end of it. But that week I spent with her in Mexico City, I just knew that a week was not enough. And I knew that Leonora had things that I could learn so much from Leonora and that I really wanted to spend as much time with her as I could. Now, that wasn't easy to organise because I've got four daughters. The youngest one was only about three at the time. And we lived in London and Leonora lived in Mexico. So at first I thought that I would write a book about her and I asked her if I could do that. And she said, well, you can, but, you know, not in my lifetime. And I said, that's fine. But then a better sort of way forward presented itself, which was that I got, uh, I, I, again, by chance, met a guy who was the director of a, of a gallery, modern British art in the south of England. And he wanted to have an exhibition of Leonora's work. And of course, I was the key for him to actually meeting Leonora. Mm. So he and then although I'm not an art historian, and I've never organized an art show at any other point, I managed to persuade him to let me be his co-curator. And we worked together and we were actually a very good team. And the other really good thing about that exhibition, this was the first time Leonora's work had been shown in the UK for 20 years, it happened in 2010. And the good thing I think about that show in terms of her legacy was that a lot of her work was in private collections and many of the private collectors were people known to Leonora. And some of them were like, you know, her doctor, her dentist, her lawyer, because as artists do, she would sometimes give them paintings in lieu of, you know, of a bill or whatever. Or they were her friends and she just gave them her paintings or they bought her paintings. But anyway, sitting at her kitchen table in Mexico City, was the place to get to know the people who owned the paintings because Leonora did not own, by the time I knew her, many of her own paintings. So I think that was quite an important thing, just a chance thing, you know, that everything fell into place. But I think it's been quite good for her legacy because more of that work now is finding its way into public collections. And of course, if you champion the work of an artist, what you want is to have their work on view, on display in art galleries that everybody can access. You don't want, I mean, of course, it's wonderful that people collect art and have them on the walls of their expensive homes in Manhattan, London, Paris. But to get an artist well-known and their message out there, you want them to be accessible. Absolutely. And I think there has been such a renewed interest in the last couple of decades, especially in highlighting women artists who may not have gotten as much attention as they should have in history. So I think Leonora's legacy really contributes to all of that or is part of that broader conversation. I feel like there's so much to talk about with her and her life and your experiences in discussing everything with her. Can you tell us a little bit about how she was raised and her childhood in Britain, because it seems like how her upbringing and her personal experiences may have played a little bit into her art as she got older. Could you give us a tiny bit of background on that? Well, for sure. And in fact, it's precisely to show how her, particularly her early life, but right through her life, how the places and spaces 
in her life fed into her work, both as a visual artist and also as a writer, because a very important thing to say about Leonora is that she was a writer as well, a writer of short stories and a novella that's never been out of print called The Hearing Trumpet, which The Guardian described some years ago as one of the one of the books you should read before you, one of the important books to read in your lifetime kind of thing. Those experiences of her early life were definitely provided her with a lot of the material for the for the work she went on to do throughout her long life, because she died in her mid-90s. So she was born and raised, as indeed I was, for the same reasons as her, because my father, like her father, was a textile mill owner. Obviously, complete, you know, that that's related because my grandfather and his brother-in-law set up the textile mills together. So Leonora was raised the daughter of a very wealthy textile mill owner in Lancashire. She was born in 1917 and she was born into a family with a lot of money, but they weren't an aristocratic family. And I think her mother, who was my great aunt, rather liked the idea of moving up the social, you know, the social ladder a bit. And her parents, Maury and Harold, they were called, they had four children, but they had three sons and one daughter. And such is the way of English class, the class system in England, that the way that in these times, in the 1920s and 30s, that if you wanted to your family to move up the social echelons, the important thing was who your daughter married, because that would take you up into these grand drawing rooms if you get your daughter married off into a posh family. So that was very much the ambition of certainly Maury. And uh, so Leonora went through this, what seems arcane to us now um, process, well, it did to her at the time, to be fair, called becoming, she became a debutante and she was presented at court, the court of King George V and Queen Mary um, in this ab, this extraordinary theatre process that used to go on, went on into the 50s. So she was a debutante, but she was a very unhappy debutante and she called the whole thing, she used to call it a cattle market. <laughs> yes. It was a marriage market, but she felt it that she was being treated, that they were all being treated like cattle. And the ambition was obviously get, to get her married off. Ideally, her parents' uh, mother certainly would have wanted her to get married to a Catholic aristocrat because they were a Catholic family. But that's not what happened. Instead, she went through two seasons as a debutante, didn't get any marriage proposals, persuaded her parents to let her stay in London. I'm sure they were hopeful that she was still going to net the, the Catholic aristo, unlikely though it was now seeming. But she persuaded them to let her stay in London. And on a an evening in early summer 1937, she went for dinner with a fellow art student at the home of this woman's home, Ursula Blackwell, she was actually called. So, so what happened was that Leonora went for dinner with her friend Ursula and her husband, Erno Goldfinger. Goldfinger was going to become the model for the great baddie in uh, Ian Fleming's book. So everyone's heard of Goldfinger, haven't they? Absolutely. You know, oh, my goodness. James Bond's baddie. But that was in the future. He hadn't yet fallen out with Ian Fleming and become the baddie in the story. So on this evening in 1937, Erno Goldfinger introduced Leonora to his friend Max Ernst, and the two of them fell in love, apparently. That's the story that she told me. 
and that she told many people and that clearly, you know, it's clearly what happened. And uh, the problem for Leonora's family, the Carringtons, was that this man, Max Ernst, was about as far as anybody could be from the ideal son-in-law that they were hoping Leonora would find. So he was, Max Ernst was 46 to Leonora's 20, married. He was also divorced. He was also the father of a teenage son. He was also German and he was also an artist. And the fact that he was actually already quite a famous artist cut absolutely no ice at all. He was the worst kind of boyfriend she could have found. And also they were very quickly openly living together in London as a couple. And it went down very, very badly in (laughs) Lancashire family home, as you can imagine. Sure. Leonora's father tried to stop the relationship by a rather strange way. He got the Metropolitan Police to look into the exhibition that Max had on at the time in London, telling them that he thought it was pornographic. Max's, another friend of Max's was Roland Penrose, who was recently hooked up with Lee Miller, the photographer, the American photographer. And the four of them, to get away from the police and to get Max away from the police, went off to Roland's brother's house in Cornwall. And they were joined by a whole group of surrealist friends who were surrealist artists, people like Eileen Agar, the Elward couple, even, I mean, he wasn't a surrealist, but Henry Moore, the sculptor, called in for lunch one day. It was a big gathering. And it, I think it was a very important moment in Leonora's story because it kind of introduced her to another kind of life and the problem for her had been that she felt she didn't fit into this world she'd been born into in Lancashire she didn't feel that she could be the artist she'd been put on the earth to be or arrived on the earth to be as a member of this family that was that she saw as constricting and stopping her from doing things rather than allowing her to expand and find what, the, what what life held for her. But those weeks in Cornwall with this group, and of course, including Max, made her find see that there was another way of life. So really, she found her family in the Surrealists. She found her true family. That's how I see it, because she didn't find, of course, she, you know, there were big family bonds. But I'm afraid that the bond that was broken at the time was the bond between her and her father, mm. because they had a big row about her relationship with Max Ernst and she never saw her father again. He died in the 1950s. This was 1937 when Leonora went and she never saw him again. So it was a big split. Absolutely. A very big split. But as you mentioned, it seems like she found her own family, her own version of family. So the meeting with Max Ernst and falling in love with Max Ernst was this huge turning point for her. How much experience did she have with art before that point, with making art? And she obviously knew and felt that she wanted to be an artist, a writer, a creator. But how much was this a major formative moment in terms of actually creating art? Or did she always have training as an artist, a background as an artist? Well, what Leonora said to me and what she absolutely believed was that you don't become an artist. She believed that you are born an artist, that an artist is what you are inside yourself. I love um, And she described art to me, her feelings about making art. She described it to me as a need. She said it's like go- going to the kitchen when you need to eat. That's what it is to be an artist. She had 
obviously it follows that she'd always had that hunger for art to, to create art and I think she I know she'd been doing it from her very earliest years in the nursery at Crookie Hall where she grew up this gothic great hall in in the north of England in Lancashire so she was always somebody who would be drawing and writing but she and she didn't have a lot of formal teaching but she did have this brief spell in London after she had failed to find a husband as a debutante and then persuaded her parents to let her stay in London. So she maybe had a year or so. And she trained at that time under a French cubist painter called Amadeo Enfant, who ran a rather curious art school out of a garage in Kensington in West London with just a few students, including, of course, the aforementioned Ursula Blackwell, who became the wife of Erno Goldfinger. So she did have some training and she always said that, uh, sorry, not uh, no, she always said that Amadeo Zonfon was a fantastic teacher and he was very, very keen on drawing. That was, as it obviously is for artists that they're in the, uh, their training to, to draw. It didn't go on for very long. That, that I mean, she had a year max of it. I can't remember exactly that. But what the, I think Max Ernst's arrival in her life to go back to your question about, yes. about what he brought in, I, I think the other thing she used to talk about was how much she learned from Max. And obviously there's been a huge big rethink about these women, the, the, these women who were at the heart of the surrealist movement, who were seen by the men who were the dominating forces at the time of surrealism. They were seen as the muses, but actually they were artists in their own right. But I think it's important to say that Leonora, although she would, she absolutely was not amused, and she said that on many occasions she was not amused, but she would, I think, have always acknowledged how much she learned from Max Ernst, and that was a great deal because she used to say that she'd been supposedly educated in convent boarding school. She'd actually been expelled from two of them, but she used to say that they were, that was a diseducation, the opposite to an education because it was all about fitting in and all the things she wasn't interested in doing. And from Max, she learned the most important thing that anybody learns from an education, which is to expand your mind, to expand your experiences. And that's what Max gave her. Not only Max, but being part of when she went to Paris with him in 1937, she was incredibly fortunate, I think, to sort of be almost parachuted into the centre of what was by then mature surrealism. So this was a really exciting place to be artistically. And as well as Max, she was now sitting at a table in the Café de Magot in, with the likes of Picasso and Dali and Breton and Duchamp. They were just all there. And she was right there in the centre of the gang. So that must have been a fairly broadening, uh, an experience that broadened her knowledge. There's more coming up next, right after this break. Want to listen ad-free? Join Patreon for the cost of a cup of coffee. Visit patreon.com slash artcurious, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Art Curious. 
I think of her as one of these wonderfully prominent figures in the surrealist movement, but I think of her work as also being so different than a lot of those surrealists like Ernst that she was hanging out with. Could you share some, in, in your mind, some of the characteristics of her work that set her apart from a lot of these male contemporaries, especially that we think of as being the big guys in the surrealist movement? Well, I think obviously an interesting thing about surrealism as an art movement is that it's so different from, it's not like cubism or, I don't know, impression, impressionism, where what you're talking about is a type of a visual type, isn't it, of painting? Because surrealism was not a type of painting, it was a way of interpreting the world and what you chose to put on the painting, on the canvas, but the paintings themselves. I mean, think of the difference between Dali and Magritte, for example. Mm -hmm. They're very, very different. Carlo, Frida Carlo, and Max Ernst. And then, so that, so I think surrealism is a movement of very different types of art. I mean, who who could we say who were similar? I suppose in some ways you could say that Dorothea Tanning's work, when she comes along, is more similar to Leonora's. And of course, many people would liken Remedios Varo and Leonora. Mm. Varo is a Spanish painter who becomes Leonora's friend down the line when she gets to, to Mexico. But I think that Leonora was always painting her own real reality. She was always painting the world she remembered or the world she was in. And often she was putting those two together. So she was painting scenes that were very layered and very congruent with the world as she saw it. And she was the world, I think for any of us, if we stop and think, the world is more than just the here and now, what we can feel and see and touch, isn't it? It's all the layers of spiritual stuff that surround us and history and our ancestors and where we get our ideas from in our family, you know, all of these layers that make, that bring us to the moment we're at right now, the here and now. And I think one of what Leonora was possibly most trying to do in her canvases was to capture these layers. And you can see it quite literally sometimes in her canvases because there's often a layer, under an underworld layer, the skeletons of maybe the family or creatures who've gone before us. And there are things going on that are not in, as there are in obviously other surrealists' work, but things that we would struggle to imagine actually happening. But they, in Leonora's world, they were they made complete sense and not only in Leonora's world, but she was she was building up a very layered picture of life and putting it all on the canvas to, you know, there's so much when you look at Leonora's paintings, there is so much going on. And that's what I always used to say to her. And she took that as a compliment, as indeed it was, you know, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think with any artist, the great thing to do is to spend time with the painting, to really spend time with it. If it's a painting that says something to you or means something to you. And certainly with the Leonora painting, there is there's so much to unpick. Some of it, there are some paintings that I think I can, but well, art historians think, you know, that they can see what's going on. But there are always layers that you think, what's happening there? And I feel like Leonora gave us she wasn't somebody who directed us to think a certain way about her art. She gave it to us and said, 
you make of this, you think about it, you, you make of it what you will. She wasn't trying to direct our thoughts on how we interpreted her painting. And that's quite different, different as you know, from yes. many artists. I could say many male artists, although that maybe that's unfair, but I mean, certainly in my day job, I feel like I've, I mean, it's not only male artists, is it? But you do get a lot of artists who will tell you what the piece means. Leonora would never do that because what the piece means is what it means to you. Yes, that resonates with me so much because I completely agree with you in my own day world, day job experiences as well. I feel like it is the exception rather than the rule that people will say, oh, it's up to you. And I, I would love to know what you think it means because I totally agree with you. I think a lot of people are would prefer to say this is what it means and now you know that's the end of the story. So I love this about the openness and kind of expansiveness that she allows to the viewer. That's really a special gift. I'm also really loving what you're saying about all of these layers that are so present in her work. And I think there's all these little diverse themes and influences that we can see. And I'm curious about how her influences changed over time. I would love to hear a little bit about her decision specifically to leave Europe and then eventually to go on to settle in Mexico. How did all these changes of environment, you mentioned to me earlier also that she lived in Italy for a while, how did all of that affect her sense of identity and also her artwork themselves? It's a long and complex, you know, story. I mean, this is my second book about Leonora. Yeah. My first one is called The Surreal Life of Leonora Carrington, published by Virago. And that's less picture-led, less image-led. And it tells the story of, primarily it tells the story of what the thing that interested me the most, which is why did Leonora have to leave? Why did she have to leave our family? Why did she have to leave England why eventually did she have to leave Europe what was going on for her that had that took her all the way to Mexico so that's one story that I unpack and then the other story I unpack around the edges is a bit about the story of our friendship and how that came about and our relationship at the end of her life but it's mostly the first it's mostly the, the story of what happened to her and what did happen to her that there are these kind of extraordinary years in Leonora's life from 1937 when I've already described what happened then she met Max Ernst and she left her England and she went to live in Paris with him so the years are between 1937 and 1942 so quite a small space of time an awful lot happened to her so just to gallop through that obviously there's lots about it in the book because in the book I've gone in her footsteps I followed in her footsteps across Europe and been to the places and seen the places she saw and places she lived in and tried to unpick a bit what was going on in her life there and as I say how it affected her art but from just to tell you quickly from Paris Leonora and Max went to the south of France they left the group because Ernst had fallen out with Breton the surrealist like most art movements you know there's always there are always people falling out with each other so they fell out <laughs> he went to the, the pair of them went to live in the south of France there was also a problem for Leonora and Max about living in Paris which was that Max's wife was living in Paris so obviously for understandable reasons she wasn't very pleased at her husband turning up with his new girlfriend <laughs> so the so Leonora and Max went to live in the south of France they had this idyllic summer in the south of France in 1938 to 9 and the it's it would be true to say that one of the reasons I've written this new book is because I have 
been incredibly fortunate and had access to this house, a lot of access to this house where they lived in the south of France. It's a farmhouse in the Ardèche, in a remote area of France. And really it was that it gave these two artists the summer of their lives. And I believe that that's true for Max Ernst as well as for Leonora. And what they did in this house was they painted the house. They painted canvases as well. Some of them are now paintings. They painted each other. And those paintings are on gallery walls. They made art that's there in, in New York and in, in the US and in Europe. But they also painted the house. So what I mean by that is they made bas relief on the walls of the house and the outside of the house, the inside of the house. Max Ernst made a mosaic on the floor of the house and Leonora did a lot of paintings on the walls and the cupboards. So of course this art doesn't travel, this art stays in the house and for quite a few reasons this house is not open to the public and probably will not be open to the public. So I realised that because I had had this opportunity to spend, as I say, quite a lot of time in the house, that that I felt sharing the story of that house was an important thing to do. That's a big reason why I wrote this book. And I describe it as they kind of, they painted the house with their love, really. The house became the lasting symbol, the lasting evidence of this this extraordinary love affair that was so much so important to both their lives however and that and of course so they were there they went there in 1938 and they stayed there through 38 into 39 but of course what was happening in Europe was that the Nazis Max Ernst had already left Germany many years before because of the Nazi the rise of the Nazi movement and now of course the storm clouds of war were gathering and I think it's very true to say that Leonora and Max kind of ignored that the danger was written on the wall they were having this wonderful summer they thought it they would just be able to go on forever but of course they couldn't and when the nazis invaded france max ernst who was a german was taken away and imprisoned because where leonora max was vichy france the France that wasn't ruled by Nazi Germany, although it's a complex story why, you know, exactly who was pulling the, the strings there. But anyway, the net result was Max Ernst was taken away from Leonora, locked up not once, but twice. She had a breakdown. She ended up all alone. And a friend who was driving to Spain came to collect her and basically persuaded her to leave, which she didn't want to do because she knew that if Max Ernst got out of his camp where he was being held, he would return to the village Mm. and he would return to the house and she'd be gone. And that's exactly what did happen. But she left reluctantly. She went to Spain. She ended up, this is a very long story, but she ended up in an asylum in Spain, which was a very difficult part of her life, but also a part of her life that, that remained with her right through her long life the things that happened to her in this place that she called the asylum it was actually more of a sanatorium in Santander in the north of Spain so in the book I talk about what happened to her there and then she escaped went to Madrid but family had tried to get her back to Lancashire and she'd refused to go so she ended up in Madrid all alone she'd again rejected her family because they'd sent the nanny to try and persuade her to go home. So she'd again rejected the family. So she was basically in Madrid with no, it was the beginning of 1941 by then. She had no money, no friends, no lover. She'd no idea what had happened to Max Ernst. Um, no, no obvious pathway. She was 
totally alone and still a young woman in her early 20s. And she met the Mexican who, a Mexican poet who Picasso had introduced her to in Paris. And that's where the, when they came up with the idea of getting married so that he could help her to leave Europe, go to a place where he'd, she'd be well out of the clutches of her family, who she used to say were the people she was most trying to escape Europe from, although she was also trying to get away from Hitler and the war. And that's what happened. And there's a little twist in the tale as well that I won't, I'll leave it to people to maybe read. <laughs> but there's a big twist as well in the tale that happens at this point. And in the end, Leonora and Renato Leduc, my her husband is called, they travel first to New York. And then in 1942, they drove down to Mexico. And Leonora was based in Mexico for the next, for the rest of her life. Although she did spend time in her late her midlife, like in her 50s and 60s and 70s, she spent time back in New York and also in Chicago. She was very fond of, of North America. And she told me once that if she could live anywhere, she'd probably live in New York. In your interactions with her when you went to visit her and make that relationship with her happen, were there any particular anecdotes or little stories that she told you that stood out to you, especially to perhaps reveal her personality or her artistic process, anything like that? Oh, it's difficult, isn't it, to just get one? I, I mean, I think the first time I went to Mexico, I was hearing the stories of her life with her life in Paris in 1937, which was obviously an extraordinarily exciting sort of story. And she told me about the way the men treated her. And that wasn't, as I said before, not in a in a kind of necessarily in a bad way so there was one of the things that that she told me was about how Miro one day gave her some money and said and asked her to go and get some cigarettes and obviously what that revealed was what he he thought she was this young woman and she had time on her hands and she could walk to the end of the street and get his get him some cigarettes and she he gave her some money and she gave the money back to him and he said and she said to him if he wanted cigarettes he could bloody well go and get them himself <laughs> I um, love it. <laughs> and, and she said to me, and I totally believed her and knew it was true, that she was never daunted by those men. And when you bear in mind that she was a, a woman in her early 20s, and these were guys in their 40s and 50s and 60s, there was an extraordinary sort of presence about her that she was able to be so grounded. And that's something that I really know she always was. And the woman she described, her friend from that period was so much the woman I also knew in Mexico so she was somebody who I think she had always had a very strong sense of herself and that's what came through and then in I knew her for five years and I I went to Mexico after that first visit I went twice each year and I'd sometimes stay for three or four weeks and so our relationship became much less about talking about the past and much more about the day-to-day -day life and Leonora would always prefer to talk about the day-to-day -day. she wasn't somebody who really wanted to spend her whole time talking about Paris in 1937 sure. she wanted to talk about what's happening on the street or if we were going to get what kind of pizza we were going to get for dinner and and also she was interested in this family she'd left behind all those years before I think that Leonora is one of those people who's very much continues to inspire artists and creators today. Do you see her influence manifesting itself in today's art and culture? Or how do you 
think that she's currently still a part of it? Well, I think one very important answer to that is the Venice Biennale of last year. Ooh. The 2022 Venice Biennale was named for Leonora, The Milk of Dreams, after a book written by her son, her son Gabby, that was based on the bedtime stories and drawings that she did for her sons when they were kids. Julia Amar, actually, I can't remember her, her surname, but the curator of last year's Venice Biennale wanted to create a Biennale, the first Biennale in, Ven in the history of the Venice Biennale that would be woman-centric. So women artists were not just a few here and there, they were the bulk of the artists showing in Venice last year. And I think that that is a, an extraordinary tribute to Leonora, and I think she would be absolutely thrilled that her inspiration had led to something so seismic, really, in the art world that's the contemporary scene, the art, the contemporary art world. And many of the artists who showed in Venice last year were doing work that sprung from Leonora's work. And I'm sure she would say it doesn't matter if they were or not. The important thing was that women artists were centre stage and that they were being taken seriously and they were being shown. I actually did not know that. So this is wonderful news. And oh, how wonderful. I love it so much. Thank you so much for being with me on Art Curious today. I've loved speaking with you and I've loved learning more about Leonora's life and her work. Oh, that's so good, Jen. It's very, very nice to talk to you. And thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Thank you for listening in today. And I hope you enjoyed this interview with Joanna Moorhead. As I mentioned previously, I've got a couple more interviews coming your way over the next few months. And then again, we will head into our holiday season here in the U.S. with a very, very special episode. So stay subscribed and I will see you again soon. Stay curious.